ring series, like in the Twin Towers and, and skipping over the Fellowship of the Ring. It's hard to understand what's going on, uh, or it's kind of like, that doesn't connect, does it? You don't, not a Lord, <laughs> don't read Lord of the Rings. Uh, or, okay, how about, it's kind of like watching Endgame with uh, Marvel before you watch like the 9,000 other Marvel movies that lead up to it. Um, you got to understand Genesis to understand Exodus. And so if you've never walked through and read through Genesis, I would encourage you to do that over the next week or so. It's a longer book. It'll take you some, some time. And today we'll cover some of what's in Genesis because the first few verses of Exodus really point backward to Genesis. And you, you see the connection there. And so this is a basic overall big picture outline of Exodus. Okay? So if you're, oh, and by the way, if you're, if you're taking notes, if you've got one of these, uh, and if you haven't got a chance to get one of these, I do have one left today. So this is basically a uh, journal Bible that just has Exodus, okay? And so every other page is blank. And so if you like one of these, it's $5. I've got one left. You can grab it today. I've also got a bunch more ordered for next week that will be here by next week. And so uh, if you want to bring $5 and uh, you want one of those, you can come see me today, and I'll put your name on a list. Make sure you get one of those. But if you're taking notes, this is kind of the overall big picture uh, outline of Exodus. And so there's a lot of different ways you can break Exodus down. Uh, I like breaking it down into three sections, okay? Section one is chapters 1 to 18, and it's all about God delivering the Israelites out of Egypt. Section two, which is chapters 19 to 24, is all about God giving the law. It's the Ten Commandments and, and other laws to the Israelites and then chapters 25 to 40, that's all about God showing the Israelites how to worship him. And so that's where they get into the tabernacle and, and all the intricacies of the tabernacle. And so today, we're, we're just going to, in fact, first of all, my goal this year is just to get through the first 18 chapters, that first section. Okay, so that's what we're hoping to accomplish in 2018. And you can actually break down that first section, 1 through 18, into three separate sections also. And so we'll take some breaks throughout the year. The first section is chapters 1 through 6, and we're going to talk about the Israelites being in bondage in Egypt. And then chapters 7 through 12 talks about the Lord's judgment against Egypt. And so that's all the plagues, right? And then chapters 13 through 18 gives the actual account of the Exodus and God leading them out of Egypt towards Sinai to worship him. Okay, so that's where we're headed. Today, we're just going to focus on the first seven verses of chapter 1. And Moses means for us here to look backwards to Genesis. In fact, the first word, which is not translated in most modern translations, in fact, the ESV doesn't even have the word there, but in the original text, there's a conjunction at the very beginning. That can be, some translations will add the word now at the beginning. Maybe your translation has that. But it can also be translated as and. And so in English, we don't like to start our sentences out with the word and. But there's a reason that it was there. It, it, it's meant to connect what's going on in Exodus with what just happened. God is going, doing something here. He's got a purpose. He's got a plan. And everything that's happened in the past is leading up to what's going on here in Exodus chapter 1. And so today's passage is meant to remind us that God has not forgotten his covenant, his promises. Uh, Genesis was the story of God creating the world to display his glory. 
Exodus is the story of God creating a nation to fill the world with his glory. All right, so let's pray, and then we're going to dive into this text. Father, I pray that you would open up our eyes to see wonderful things in your word today. I pray that your spirit would move in us and fill us with fearlessness, that you would fill us with a joy that surpasses all understanding, a, a peace that surpasses all understanding, a, uh, that you give us just a, a heart for the gospel because of your word, a desire to share your faithfulness with other, others. I, I pray that you would help us to see your faithfulness and our, our very identity would be wrapped around us being a delivered people in Christ. Use your word to change us. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, pick up with me, chapter 1, verse 1. And <laughs> these are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan and Nephtali, Gad and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died and all his brothers and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. So here's the outline today, just two points. God's promises endure, and secondly, God's plans start small. God's promises endure, God's plans start small. So let's start with God's promises endure. And so the beginning of Exodus, again, it picks up where Genesis left off. And so remember at the end of Genesis, you've got the story of Joseph, and it's one of the longest narratives in all of the Bible. Joseph, of course, is the favorite son of Jacob. He's, Jacob's got 12 sons. Joseph is his favorite. All of his brothers are jealous of him, and so they sell him into slavery. He ends up in Egypt where he's a slave there. And through God's providence, God raises him up from a slave to be the second most powerful person in all of Egypt right under the Pharaoh, which is huge because that ends up saving his family because there's this huge famine that comes. And because of Joseph's wisdom that God gave him, Egypt saves up all their food and they've got plenty. And so everybody comes to Egypt to be saved, including Joseph's whole family. And so Joseph ends up saving his family. And in the very last chapter of Genesis, in fact, go ahead and turn back to the last chapter in Genesis and just kind of skim through there. We read some of it earlier today. Mackenzie read a little bit of it uh, earlier, promise from, from God there. And as you scan through that chapter, what you're going to see is at the beginning of the chapter, Joseph buries his father, right, Jacob. But he doesn't bury him in Egypt. He buries him where? In Canaan, which is significant because that's the promised land, and that was what we read earlier. That's where God had promised to bury him. 
And then it goes on, after Joseph buries his father, he meets up with his 11 brothers. And you can imagine, okay, the 11 brothers are pretty scared at this point because, okay, this is the, this is the brother that we sold into slavery. Now dad's dead. Now he's going to repay pay us back, right? But instead, he famously says the line to his brothers. Joseph says, as, you, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. The great declaration of God's sovereignty, even in the most darkest days that even though they meant it for evil, God meant it for good. And then finally, at the end of Genesis chapter 50, we read about the death of Joseph. And right before he dies, he reminds his brothers of the covenant that God made with him. And Joseph said to his brothers, I'm about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And so Genesis finishes up with a reminder that Egypt is not their home. Exodus starts then by listing off the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob. Now did you catch that? He uses, Moses uses both names for Jacob there. Uh, If you remember, Israel was the name God gave Jacob after Jacob had been wrestling with him, okay? It literally means to strive with God or to, to wrestle with God. And a little context behind that, if you know anything about uh, Jacob's life, he wrestled with God his whole life. And in fact, Jacob was very much a swindler. He had swindled his brother out of his birthright. He had swindled his father into giving him his brother's blessing. And so his brother Esau uh, wasn't a big fan of Jacob, right? In fact, he had vowed to kill Jacob, and so Jacob runs away. He doesn't see his brother for uh, many, many years. And then finally, after many years, he's about to see his brother for the first time after all this swindling has taken place. And you can imagine how scared he is. And so, in fact, he goes and he camps by himself. He sleeps by himself the night before he's going to see his brother Esau, thinking that, okay, if he finds me, at least he won't kill the rest of my family. And so he sleeps that night, and the text says that in that night, a man wrestled with him all night long. Now, most theologians believe that this this man was the pre-incarnate Jesus that was wrestling with him. And after the wrestling match, that's when Jesus gives him his new name, changes it from Jacob to Israel, because he's wrestling with God. He had wrestled with God, and it was a moment, it was a defining moment for Jacob, and God's basically saying that, look, your life is never going to be the same, and you belong to me. You belong to me. Then a few chapters later, in chapter 35, he reminds him of that name change, and then he gives, them, gives him this commandment, it should be pretty familiar to you, and a covenant. Genesis 35, 11, and 12, and God says to him, Jacob, or Israel, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from your own body. The land that I gave to Abraham and to Isaac, I will give to you, and I will give the land to your offspring after you. Okay, so that wasn't the first time that God had made this promise, right? If you turn back, flip back to Genesis 26, verse 4. This is the same promise he had made to Jacob's father, Isaac. He says, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heavens and will give to your offspring all these lands. And in your offspring, singular, that's key, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. In fact, the New Testament points out that that word is singular and it's pointing to Jesus. 
Okay, so your offspring will be a blessing to everybody. And again, I'll flip back to Genesis chapter 17, verse 6. God made the same promise to Jacob's grandfather, Abram. And just like Jacob, God changed Abram's name to Abraham. And he says, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be called Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojourners, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession. And I will be there God. And then if you flip back to Genesis chapter 12, when God first approaches Abram, this is how he approaches him. Chapter 12, verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you, what? A great nation. And I will bless you and make you a great name so that you will be blessed. I will bless those who bless you and I will dis- and those who dishonor you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And so you've got this pattern of this promise that's throughout Genesis, and you can track it. And it even goes back further than Abraham. You can go back to Genesis chapter 9, verse 7. And this is after the flood. God is giving a covenant to Noah, and he says to Noah, and you, gives him this command, be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it, which of course is the original command he gave to Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 1. And so you see this command and this promise throughout Genesis. And so Exodus begins with the Israelites doing what? Being fruitful and multiplying. They're being obedient to what God has called them to do, and God is blessing them because of it. It's a reminder that God's promises, even though, okay, yes, it's been 400 years, Jacob is gone, Joseph is gone, the brothers are gone, the whole generation is gone, and yet God's promises endure. God's purpose and his plans still are very much active. And I'm sure if you were in Egypt and you're in that generation where it's been 400 years, I can imagine it's pretty dark and it's difficult and you may feel like God's not working. And I mean, we've, we've dealt with, what, 10 months of kind of chaos in our world, and it's easy for us to lose track of believing that God is faithful and He is working. But this story reminds us that even if it doesn't seem like it, right now, in this moment, God is always working behind the scenes. You see, I believe one of the biggest blessings of studying Exodus And really, if you allow your heart to be really captivated by the story, is that it's going to help build your trust in the faithfulness of God. That he does truly care for you. That he hears your prayers. It'll help build your trust that God will rescue you. That your life will not be defined by being a slave. A slave to sin or a slave to fear. It helps you build your trust in God's trustworthiness and His ability to keep His covenant promises. Indeed, the Exodus would not simply just be an event 
that Israel would be called to remember. It would be their defining moment. The Exodus would become the basis for how they would, as Israelites, understand themselves. Not as slaves, but as a redeemed people. And this is my prayer for us as a church as we study this book. As we dive deeper into this story that you will be able to look in the mirror and not see all your failures or your sin. You look in the mirror and you won't see what you're enslaved to or the fears that you have, but you would look in the mirror and you would see God's amazing grace. But you would look in the mirror and you would see somebody who has been redeemed by God and that your very identity, like the Israelites, would be wrapped up fully and being delivered by Christ. We, like them, are a delivered people. That's who we are. We ought to live in light of that. Let me show you just how this would play out in the lives of the Israelites in a very practical way. Go ahead and turn to Deuteronomy chapter 7, and we're going to actually put this up on the board too. Deuteronomy chapter 7, I'm going to start in verse 6, and let me give you a little context while you're turning there. Uh, it's to the right a couple, couple books, okay? So after wandering in the desert for 40 years, the Israelites are now at the edge of the promised land. They're about to enter into Canaan. And they had been in this position before, right? Forty years before, they had come to the edge of the promised land. They sent in 12 spies. Ten of them come back and say, nope, can't do it. Those nations are too big. They're too powerful. They're giants over there. Yeah, it's beautiful over there, but I, we, we're too small. We're too weak. We can't go in there and defeat them. And so God sends them into the wilderness for 40 years to teach them how to trust him. And so here they are, back again, right at the edge of Canaan, and so God gives them this pep talk called Deuteronomy, right? And in Deuteronomy chapter 7, starting in verse 6, listen to what God says. For you are a people, holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the people who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on, you and, and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know, therefore, that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. And so God, right before they're about to enter in to try to occupy this land, and remember, they, didn't just, they couldn't just go in and, and plant their flag there. They had to go and conquer these nations that were bigger than them. And so God says, don't be afraid. Why? This is why you don't need to be afraid. Because you belong to me. You're my chosen people. You're my treasured possession. Not, not because there's anything special about you either. But because of my love, because of my faithfulness, I will fulfill my promises. I've already shown you my commitment to you through the exodus. And so now trust me. I've got you. 
I think for many of us, that's what we need to hear in 2021. As difficult as it has been this past year, we need to be reminded that we are God's. And I'm so thankful that the Apostle Peter speaks to the church and he says this to us today. He says, but you, Mercy Hill, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of her or delivered you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. See, the first thing that I want you to get from Exodus is that this is a story of God's faithfulness that points to a greater story of God's faithfulness in Christ. When God sends his son to live the life that we should have lived and he ends up dying the death that we deserved. And through his resurrection, we find deliverance from sin. A greater deliverance than the Israelites found. And so we no longer need to fear. Not even death itself. Now the second thing that I want you to notice in the first few verses of Exodus is that Moses is reminding us that they were small. He reminds us of the, the smallness of the Israelites, that God uses small things to accomplish big plans, right? That's why in verse 5, he reminds us that Jacob's family, when they first came into Egypt, it was only around 70, which is a big family, don't get me wrong. But that's no nation, okay? It's small. But through God's faithfulness, even in the midst of being in a, a foreign land, what happens? They multiply. They become fruitful. They become a great nation. And there's actually some debate on how large the Israelites became in Egypt when they left for the Exodus. Uh, and some people say it was around 2.4 million. Others say it was only around 30,000. Personally, I don't think it matters. God's faithfulness. I mean, when you're in the desert, if you're wandering around with 30,000 or 2.4 million, it, it's still hard to feed a lot of that many people, right? I have a hard time feeling, feeding our, our family of eight, let alone 30,000 or 2.4 million. We know this, it was large enough, we're going to see this next week, they had become large enough to intimidate, intimidate the Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. And so he felt like he had to do something about them. But today what I want to highlight is that this pattern of God using the small and insignificance of these people and, 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 and others to accomplish his purpose. God, I mean, think about it, God could have chosen any people. He could have chosen the, the powerful Egyptians to accomplish his, his purpose of redemption. But we see this pattern throughout Scripture. I mean, Joseph uh, he was a slave, right? Uh, became the most, second most powerful man in Egypt to rescue the Israelites. Moses was a nobody. Ends up being raised in the palace and then ends up having to flee because he murders somebody. And God still uses him to rescue the Israelites. Later on, Gideon. He describes himself as the least in his family. He, he was the youngest, the smallest, the least respected in his entire tribe. And yet God uses him to lead the Israelites against a much larger, superior Midian, Midianite army. And he, he says, look, you're going to do it with just 300 men. Yet God uses the small things to accomplish big purposes. Uh, David, the youngest brother in his family, almost forgotten, right? Lowly shepherd boy. And yet God uses him not just to slay a giant, but to become one of the greatest 
kings in all of Israel, a man after God's own heart. And of course, you've got Jesus, God in the flesh, born as a baby, born in a stinky feeding trough, right? Mother was a teenager, father is a carpenter, they're from an unremarkable town, surrounds himself with fishermen and tax collectors, and God, that's God though, the Savior, the Redeemer of the world. In Him, all of these promises that we've been reading are fulfilled. We all love a good underdog story. Why is the Bible filled with all of these underdog stories? Well, the Apostle Paul actually answers that question in 1 Corinthians 1, verses 26 through 29. He says, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to the worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And so God uses the weak and the foolish, the small, the insignificant, because they're humble. It's because of their humility. And, and in their humility, they rely not on themselves, but on God to accomplish great things. God loves to use those who will not boast in themselves, but will boast in Jesus. And so maybe today you're in a position where it seems like life has just knocked you down over and over and over again. Well, maybe God, like he did with Joseph, has allowed you to go through those things to put you in a position where you can actually be used by God in mighty ways. Let me give you one last story to chew on about a nobody. Anybody ever hear of Edward Kimball? Didn't think so. Okay, so Edward Kimball was an average Sunday school teacher uh, many years ago. And he was concerned about one of his young students. Uh, this young student happened to work in a shoe store in town, and so he goes and he visits this student, and he ends up sharing Christ with him, and he trusts, this student trusts in Christ right there. Now, that student was named Dwight L. Moody. Eventually, and maybe you've heard of him, he, he would leave the shoe business and become one of the greatest preachers and evangelists of all time. Well, Moody, uh, whose international speaking took him to the British Isles, he preached there in a, in a little tiny chapel, pastored by a young man that you probably never heard of, uh, Frederick Brotherton Mayer. And in his sermon, Moody told his testimony of a, a Sunday school teacher that went and visited his students and shared the gospel with them. And this changed this young preacher's life, and he became an evangelist like, um, like Moody. And uh, he, he started going all over the world, came to America, and while speaking in Northfield, Massachusetts, a young preacher heard him, and he, he heard him specifically say this, if, if you're not willing to give up everything for Christ, are you at least willing to be made willing? And that remark led a man by the name of J. Wilbur Chapman to respond to the call of God on his life. Now, Chapman went on to become a, a very effective evangelist in his own time, uh, and one of the volunteers that helped in his ministry was 
uh, Billy Sunday. Uh, Billy Sunday would eventually take over his ministry, Chapman's ministry, and become one of the most uh, influential uh, evangelists of his day. Uh, very dynamic uh, preacher, shared the gospel with many, many people. In fact, uh, somebody in 1924 who was inspired by Billy Sunday's crusades, uh, this small group in Charlotte, North Carolina, uh, they wanted to reach their city for Christ. And so they put on this crusade. They invite uh, an evangelist by the name of Mordecai Ham to come and speak. This is 1932. In 1932, in the crowd there is this lanky 16-year-old boy who hears the gospel and responds. And uh, he, he remembers this, the, the preacher like pointing his finger uh, and eventually he, he comes forward and he trusts in Christ. Well, that teenager was Billy Graham. And he probably shared the gospel to more people than anybody has ever shared the gospel. And it was all because of this Sunday school teacher, a nobody, Edward Kimball. You never know how God's going to use you. God loves to use small things to accomplish big plans. And so what's he going to do with you? What's he going to do with our small little church? Let's pray that he would do mighty things. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for using small and insignificant, humble servants that rely fully on you to accomplish your mission. And I pray that as we dive into the story of Exodus, we would be reminded over and over again of your faithfulness, that you are a promise keeper, and that you will never let us down. And that even when things in our world seem so dark, you are always working, and you love us more than you, we could ever imagine. And so I pray as we sing and as we are reminded of your, your sacrifice, that we would be moved in our spirit to trust you and to tell others about you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, uh, we're going to enter into a time of communion. If you're a believer, I would encourage you to join us in this celebration. There is communion uh, in, the, in the back. There's juice and there's uh, bread in the back. You can grab, if you haven't already grabbed it. Uh, this is a time where I don't want us to just walk through uh, the, 